On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandak, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day and all of our many blessings. We ask that you continue to guide John and Todd in this church. We pray that you help make disciples amongst us, guide us, and lead us in your ways. Help us to be more like Philip. We ask for your guidance to help us learn to trust in you and have faith in knowing that you're always with us. We give all the glory to you, our Father. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Tony. You can be seated. For the last 10 Sundays, we've been telling the story of the birth of the church recorded in Acts in the New Testament. And even as we're starting this new church and we're forging ahead, we're looking back because ultimately within Cornerstone, we're not doing anything new. If you come looking for something innovative or that's novel, that's not us. We're not doing anything new. In fact, we're doing something that's really old. We're living into this, this ancient story that's, that's bigger than us, and we are a blip on the radar of history of all that God has been doing through Jesus and through the birth of the church, the work of the Spirit. We're a blip on the radar. 
And so as we're looking ahead, we're looking back to our roots and finding out what is the design of the church, what was supposed to be the nature of church after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and the church gathered in Jesus' name for the first time. In our study, there have been some times, we've been doing this for 10 weeks, looking at Acts, there have been some times where we've read a story, I think of Acts 2, 42 and 43, where it it talks about those moments of the church at its best. The, The disciples were together and they held everything in common. There was a unity of spirit. And maybe you've had experiences in Christian community that to you felt like that. And it's like, yes. Or maybe in your life with Jesus, you've just had a sense like we've read in the Scriptures, like that's, that's what I long for, and it makes your heart just burn to experience that or to experience that again. Then there have also been times in our study where I'm confident that what we read is so discontinuously different than what we see in the church today that our hearts break over it. Choppy, we were having a conversation a few weeks ago and said, you know, none of us are seeing the stuff that we're reading in the Bible. Let's just be honest about that. And it was sobering. There's things that you read that make your heart break and make your heart ache to experience that again. And so we wonder, why, why is what we're living now not like what we're reading that took place then? And a couple of scriptures for me come to mind. One you've heard many times if you've been around a bit at Cornerstone is John 15, 5. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear fruit, much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know when you're vacuuming, you plug in the vacuum like in the living room, and you run it over to another room, and you've stretched the cord so far that it unplugs while you're in the middle of operation, you have to go back and move the cord and the whole thing. That's the whole Christian life for many of us. There's a sense that the power has gone out. We're disconnected. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Hold that vacuum in your mind as we're thinking about the text. There's a sense in which maybe we become disconnected from Jesus, and that explains this utter lack of power or transformation that we're experiencing in our own personal life with Jesus, but also in in the community, in Christ's church. There's a sense that the power's gone out. There's also this great text in Habakkuk chapter 3 where uh, the prophet says, Lord, we've, we've heard of your fame, all these great things that, you know, our, 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 our ancestors told us about. We've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, but repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And so on the one hand, there's a sense of, of our role in this. Are we connected to Jesus? But then there's also this bigger sense of longing. God, we long for you to do the things that we've heard of. And so that's, that's where we are, this dance and in, in, in coming to terms with Scripture. Last week, we studied uh, the story of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 6 and 7. The church had been growing and, and gaining influence and, and finally was meeting some meaningful resistance and opposition. We said last week that opposition is a fundamental reality of life. Anything meaningful that you want to do, whether it's for your health, whether it's for salvaging a relationship, whether it's growing in your spiritual life, everything meaningful that you're going to do, you're going to face some kind of opposition and resistance. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so you think about the church, you think, man, who's going to oppose the church? They're healing people, they're taking care of widows and orphans. Who's going to be against that? And it's people who had something to lose. People who had influence to lose, power to lose, the people who upheld the temple structure were seeing the crowds. They said the whole world, it felt like, was going after them, and they were threatened. 
This threat, this opposition reached a boiling point when Stephen was called before the authorities and, and gave an impassioned speech telling the story of God and how the people of Israel had habitually ignored the voice of God. And it culminated in, in Stephen's martyrdom. And as they dragged him out of the temple and outside of the city to stone him, the men who stoned him laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we learn in the passage that, that Tony has just read that Saul was not there as just a passive observer, but, but Saul was, was an active, uh, violent man, a violent force against the church. And can you imagine what this would be like? The Scripture said how Saul would go house to house and drag followers of Jesus, men and women, out of their homes. We hear stories about this around the world. There's a story of the Middle East where people were spray painting, you know, the equivalent of the letter N, Nazarene, Christian, on the homes of, of people in the Middle East who were following Jesus, and that was the marker that they were, they were different, and it was a threat on their life. I was trying to imagine how I would do under persecution. What a sobering thought to entertain. How would you do? It's easy to preach to Christians. It's easy to have a, a bold love of God in a church building, but what if it actually cost us something? It's sobering. Stephen, knowing what would come, boldly proclaimed the Word of God, stood by his faith, and he died for it. And Saul, at this moment of Stephen's martyrdom, led to this, this great persecution against the church, and the church began uh, to spread. Um, and the church, has, as you know, had grown by thousands of people. It had grown large at this point in time. But unfortunately for Saul, what happened had the opposite effect of what he intended. Now, I'm probably about to give some of you nightmares, but this demonstrates it well. One time when we were at our old house in Jinx, I found this big spider crawling across the tile. I thought, I'm going to take care of this thing. And so I got a fly swatter or something, and I smacked the spider. And then it was like a Stephen King movie. Tons of baby spiders emerged from the corpse of this spider and just went out in all directions. It was disgusting. It was like, this is literally my worst nightmare. And some of you won't sleep tonight. I apologize. Go in peace. Uh, but this is what happened to the church. As they were persecuted, they began to spread. The, the Scripture says in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. A North African church father writing in the third century said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As the church was persecuted, it began to spread, and Philip was among those who, who was displaced. It says the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but Philip, who was not one of the twelve disciples, uh, although there was a Philip, uh, was among them. Philip was one of the seven. So you recall in Acts 6 and 7 that Stephen was one of these people who was put on like the benevolence team to take care of the widows. Philip was one of those. And Philip left Jerusalem and went first to Samaria, and there he preached and performed miracles, and people came to trust in Jesus. And in part of the text in Acts 8 that we skipped, Peter and John heard word that the gospel had gone to Samaria, and they were so flabbergasted by this that they had to go and see for themselves, and there baptized people and laid their hands on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were amazed that the gospel had come to Samaria because there's like, you remember Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan? It's an oxymoron because there is no good Samaritan. The gospel was diversifying in its effect. People who were estranged from, from, uh, from uh, the Jewish tribe were, 
being brought in through saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then something happened to Philip. He had this prompting. Verse 26 says this, while Philip was in Samaria, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And I'll give you a good word of uh, advice. Anytime an angel appears to you, do the thing that the angel says. Okay? Good rule of thumb. I don't know what happens if you ignore it, but obey it. Okay? So Philip does. The angel tells him to go south. He's like, I don't know what I'm doing. He makes his way. And then he has another word. Verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, go up to that chariot. And in the chariot is the secretary of the treasury for the queen of the Ethiopians. We don't know this guy's name, but we do know some things about him. He's a seeker. He's, he's a truth seeker. He's gone from Ethiopia, which is in the Horn of Africa, up to Jerusalem to worship. And on the way home, he's reading the scroll of Isaiah and wondering what it means. We learn in the text he doesn't understand it. So he'd gone from the Horn of Africa, this great distance to Jerusalem and back, because he had some questions that were driving him. He had some questions that had gone unanswered. And the Spirit said, go to the chariot. This guy is studying the Scripture, not totally sure what he's reading, and Philip, prompted by the Spirit, commanded by the angel, approaches this man and starts a conversation. And I love, and it's worth noting, that Philip starts the conversation with a question. Do you understand what you're reading? He was gentle, and he was respectful. He didn't grab the scroll and hit the guy over the head with it. He wasn't Bible-thumping. He just said, do you understand what you're reading? And it says, Philip began with that passage and began to tell him all of the good news about Jesus from Scripture. And I think there's a meaningful side note in here for us about our posture as followers of Jesus and the tone that we use when we engage with people outside of our family of faith. Philip provides a great model. In a world where so many people are angry, in a world where so many people are anxious and everybody is opinionated and we're all used to being sold something, Philip provides this beautiful model of gentleness and humility. He models this, this, this path of seeking common ground, asking questions and lovingly pointing people to Jesus, not grabbing them by the face and jerking them around. He was gentle and he was humble. And we see the result in the text. The man came to believe. He said, what can keep me from being baptized? He was baptized. And then there's this detail that Scripture just brushes over. That Then Philip, like, is whisked away and suddenly appears 36 miles away in Azotus, which was Ashdod in the Old Testament. Suddenly he's just whisked away. Don't worry about that detail. And what's amazing is we see the fruit is that there is a long-standing historic ancient Ethiopian church to this day, that as a result and part of the ministry of Philip, uh, Ethiopia came to know Jesus. There was a strong witness for the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus in Ethiopia. Philip had a part to play in that. Okay, we've told the story. You get the general idea. One main lesson, which is not going to be self-evident when I say it, but I'll explain. One main lesson and then three points of application or invitation for us. Here's the lesson. With God, nothing is wasted. With God, nothing is wasted. Okay, so how did Philip get here? The Spirit told him to talk to the guy. The angel told him to go to the road. He'd been in Samaria. How did he get to Samaria in the first place? Well, Saul got to work trying to destroy the church. Consider how beautiful this is. God wasted nothing in this situation. 
God took the persecution by Saul to send Philip to Samaria, where Samaria received the gospel. As a result of the scattering and being sent, Philip went to Ethiopia, and there the eunuch and the Ethiopians came to know Jesus. And in the process, as we'll read in the next chapters, God saved Saul the persecutor in the middle of it. God didn't waste a single thing in the middle of this situation, and he empowers Philip in the process. Even the things that were meant for harm, God redeems and repurposes. With God, nothing is wasted. So think about your story in your life, the experiences you've had. Uh, There are things that have happened in your life that you feel like perhaps are irredeemable, or they're so boring, or uh, you overlook your own usefulness to God and His kingdom. With God, nothing is wasted. Things you think don't matter, things you're ashamed of, things things you think disqualify you. With God, nothing is wasted, nothing is irredeemable. This is a, there's a scripture that is often used tritely, but it's seen so poignantly here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. Saul in this passage is not among those who love God. Saul is among those who have been called, however. In all things, not just in spiritual stuff, in everything, God is working behind the scenes for good, for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. God is ceaselessly resourceful. God is ceaselessly resourceful in repurposing our failures for His glory and for our good. With God, nothing is wasted, and with God, God is always working for good. So there's the lesson. With God, nothing is wasted. Three points of application, and my hope is this helps us begin to develop some imagination for our part in the story, okay? Here's the first. Assume that God is working for good, even when you can't see it. Assume that God is working for good. I like the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, last, last summer, Lord, I hope you're working for good with the Thunder. Um, Last summer, it was pretty quiet. We're kind of wondering, how are we going to rebuild? Is, is, is Westbrook going to re-sign? And I'm, we're not hearing much out of Presti's office, Sam Presti, the general manager. And then by the end of the summer, not only has he re-signed Westbrook to a five-year deal, he landed Paul George and Carmelo Anthony. Now, Melo didn't work out so great, so, you know, work with me. But by the end of it, I thought, okay, I trust Sam Presti. He's doing his thing. Even when I couldn't see it, he was working quietly in the background for good. Thank you, Sam Presti. (laughs) And even now, I trust you, Sam. Assume that God is working for good in the background even when you can't see it. There are things in your life that are so deeply discouraging to you, frustrating to you, chronically discouraging. Assume, give yourself permission to assume that God is working for good in the background. That's one. Number two, another assumption Assume that you have a part to play in God's story. Now, imagine this with me. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Ananias and Sapphira, kind of a creepy story, uh, really a crazy story. But we talked about Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and so their part in the storyline ended. But what if they had trusted God? What if Ananias and Sapphira hadn't lied to the Holy Spirit and instead decided to follow Jesus with full abandon? What storyline did we miss out on because they didn't trust Now they're a parable and a warning to us, but what if they had trusted God? 
Now think about some what-ifs with Philip. What if when persecution broke out, Philip holed up in some closet in Jerusalem? What would have happened and what would we have lost? Well, perhaps God would have used someone else, but the gospel, at least right here, wouldn't have gone to Samaria. And it wouldn't have come to this eunuch and it wouldn't have gone to the Ethiopians. What would have happened if Philip hadn't done this? This man who'd been seeking would have perhaps had to find another way to find his answer. Assume that you have a part to play in God's story. And what if we lived with a working assumption of both of these? One, that God is working for good in everything. And two, that God has a part for you to play in this everything that he's doing. And that leads us to the third thing. It's about we need to learn to discern God's prompting, okay? So there's the story that we've just read, but if we zoom back a bit and think creatively, we can actually see how Philip began to discern the voice of God. And these are some, there's some lessons for us as we begin to develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and learn how God may be speaking to you and to me. Three kinds of promptings. One is a situational and environmental prompting. Situational and environmental prompting. What was that for Philip? What was the prompting for Philip that he needed to get a move on? Persecution. It was not physically safe for him to stay in Jerusalem. He, ne- he needed to get on the road. Now, every one of these individually may, may be insufficient, but all together, the, the, the coalescing of the three promptings, God was speaking. God was doing something. There was the situation on the environmental prompting of persecution. Second one is this. There was a spiritual prompting. The Holy Spirit told him to talk to the dude. The angel told him to get on the road, to go to that particular road. There was a spiritual prompting. But also Philip was dispositionally like, suited for the task. He knew the Scripture. He had a personality that was evidently like, disposed toward conversation. Philip had a, had a spiritual calling on him. And the Spirit spoke, and the voice of the angel spoke. There was a spiritual prompting. And the third was this relational prompting. He encountered this man who just so happened to be reading from Isaiah the prophet. And he just so happened to be someone who knew what it meant and just so happened to be someone who was a follower of Jesus. These three promptings together, he encountered this man who was seeking. So, okay, that's Philip. He's in the Bible, okay? He's like superstar. But I believe God's speaking to us. What if we assumed that God is at work for good in everything, and what if we assume, and give ourselves permission to assume, that God wanted to include you in His story? Here are four questions that could be life-changing, honestly could be life-altering for some of us as we begin to assume that God's speaking and God wants to include us in His plan of renewal. You may want to write these down. First, this gets to the situational environmental prompting. How has God situationally positioned you to encounter need and opportunity? Where has God situationally positioned you to encounter need or opportunity? It's in the fire station, it's in the office, it's in your family, it's in the school, it's in your neighborhood. How has God uniquely positioned you to encounter some kind of need or opportunity? Second, how has the Holy Spirit equipped you, or how is the Holy Spirit equipping you to be a light for Christ? Your personality, in your gifting, in your passion, in your skills, in your vocation? What are all of those categories of things that God is doing in you to equip you to be the person to meet that need for which you're uniquely prepared? How has God, how has the Holy Spirit equipped you to be a light for Christ? And then third, 
Now think about this eunuch. God had been at work in the life of this eunuch for a while. He was seeking. He traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles round trip. He was seeking something. God had been at work in this person's life. He may have left Jerusalem, headed home, feeling defeated, like, well, I tried, and God, you didn't show up. God had been preparing him. Here's the question for us. Who are the people God is preparing for you to influence? Who are the people God is preparing for you to influence? And then this is really the kicker. This is the question that can get you in trouble. What would keep you? What would keep you from cooperating with God's work? So let's take his assumptions that God's working for good. Let's take as an assumption that God wants to use you in his story. Let's take as an assumption that God has placed you where you are to encounter need and opportunity. God has uniquely equipped you by the Holy Spirit to do work for which you uniquely are called. God is preparing people for you to influence. So what would keep you from following God's call in your life? What would keep you from cooperating with God's work? Todd Craig asked me this question in November of 2016 uh, in my old office. And I had been at the time, I would say, discerning whether I was called to be a church planter. But the real version is I was working up my nerve, and I was just scared. And Todd asked me again and again and again, what would keep you from obeying God's call on your life? And I said, like, well, that takes us an assumption that I know God's call on my life. And he's like, you do know. And so we started to talk and work this out, and I thought, well, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to start a new church, not because we're experts at anything, but because we, knew we, need, we need a new energy cycle, that there's opportunity. There are people who are not being reached. There are people who, who are stale, and a fresh energy cycle does so much. In the city of Tulsa, where there are so many churches, there are just that many back doors. There are a lot of people who've been hurt by the church. There have been people who've walked away, and maybe it was a deliberate departure in Exodus, or maybe it was just like when you get in the ocean and you end up 100 yards down shore. You didn't mean to. It just happened. And maybe they're those people who've never belonged to a family of faith and never trusted Jesus. I know there are those people in the city of Tulsa who found the church to be judgmental. What if, what if we strove to be gentle? The church, the people that have found the church to be arrogant, what if we sought to practice humility? People have experienced the church to be thoughtless. What if we were reflective? People have experienced the church to be disengaged from the needs of the world. What if we were engaged in the life of our city and renewal and nations that feel like a lost cause? Where people in the city of Tulsa have found the church to be legalistic and strict in their religion, what if we instead offered them a, a humble and unique encounter with the person of Jesus Christ who's brilliant and who longs for our good? Jesus, who was the Lamb, that was led to be slain. Jesus who was slain before the foundation of the world, Scripture says. Jesus who enabled himself to be humiliated for our good. Jesus who gave his life for the life of the world. What is that thing? What are those opportunities for which God has uniquely positioned you? And even to think more broadly, not to be just individualistic, but us as a church, how is God uniquely posturing us together as messy and broken and immature and as we can be? How is God assembling something good in the middle of our lives and in the middle of your world? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when I pray, I often think, you know what we are made of, and I don't mean it as a compliment to ourselves. 
Uh, we are prone to wander, as we sang. We are forgetful. We are half-hearted. We, you know, as Keller said, like our hearts are just idol factories. Um, and yet we're still the group that you've chosen. As we've been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ, we're the beneficiaries, the recipients of your Holy Spirit. As Paul said, we hold this treasure in jars of clay. And sometimes this clay feels really fragile and unworthy of such a task. And yet, if your word's true and we take it to be the truth, you're working for good in the middle of this, and you want to include us in the renewal and the restoration that Christ is doing. Christ will culminate His return. Lord Jesus, would you help us to discern the voice of your Spirit, to find those, those places in which you've situationally placed us to encounter need and opportunity? Would you help us to discern the ways that we, as we are, have been uniquely equipped by the Spirit to be a vessel of good news. And you give us the courage to act on it. This is something greater than ourselves, and so it has to be your work. Help us to cooperate with your Spirit for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the world that Jesus loved. And Lord, as we come to the table, we know that uh, you know, we're in different places with you. Some of us are runaways who need to return to the Father's table, be restored in fellowship. Some of us are churchy and religious, uh, and, and, but we've lost the heart. We've lost love for you. We couldn't sing with integrity as we did earlier. Jesus, we just love you. For all of us, would you draw us close to the Father? Would you help us to pay attention to the work of the Spirit so that in the world we might be like Jesus and with Jesus? Thank you for this gift that you've given us through the, through the body and the blood of Christ. Help make us into the body of Christ redeemed by his blood.